0: Keith Davis's prints were forensically recovered from that firearm. That recovered firearm was ballistically matched to the murder of Kevin Jones. Keith Davis's cell phone records, recovered and examined by the FBI, place him in direct proximity of Kevin Jones's murder. Today we are announcing the arrest of Keith Davis for first degree murder. We have worked in partnership with the state's attorney's office on behalf of Kevin Jones and Kevin Jones's family. I am thankful for the hard work of our homicide detectives, particularly lead detective Mark Vini, and I'm grateful for the dedicated and relentless work of our partners in the state's attorney's office.
1: welcome to part two of undisclosed special series, The State vs. Keith Davis Jr. My name is Rabia Chaudhry. I'm an attorney and author of the New York Times bestseller, A Non-Story. Now, before we plunge into the continuation of this live case, which is going to be ongoing for the next couple of weeks, just a note for our listeners. We'll be following the live trial of Keith Davis Jr. for the next couple of weeks. And after that, we'll be back with a short series of A Wrongful Conviction, led by Colin Miller. And after that, to end out our year, we're going to have a long season on a double homicide case out of Tennessee that you do not want to miss. All right, now back to the season at hand. Journalist Amelia McDonnell Perry has spent the last eight months investigating the events of Sunday, June 7th, 2015, the day that Keith Davis Jr. became the first person shot by the Baltimore police since the killing of Freddie Gray. The first seven episodes of the series were focused on how the police, with the help of Marilyn Mosby's state's attorney's office, covered up the truth about the shooting by alleging Keith had a gun and charging him with more than 20 crimes instead. But that was just case number one, because when their bogus case fell apart in court, police and prosecutors did it again. For the last three and a half years of his wrongful imprisonment, Keith has been defending himself against a totally different set of very serious charges— Case number two is the murder of 22-year-old Kevin Jones, who was shot to death five hours before Keith's encounter with Baltimore police. This past Friday, July 12, 2019, marked the official start of Keith Davis Jr.'s fourth trial for murder, and fifth trial since that Sunday in June 2015. Over the next two weeks, Undisclosed will air part two of the series, because Amelia is back with new episodes on Mondays and Thursdays all about the murder case as it continues to unfold in real time. And by the sound of it, well, things are off to a wild start. I stared at a full closet and realized I have nothing to wear. Refreshing a closet, however, can take a toll on your wallet and the planet. That's why ThreadUp, the world's largest online consignment and thrift store, is on a mission to inspire shoppers to think secondhand first. ThreadUp makes it super easy to stay on trend and on budget. You can discover clothing, accessories, and shoes from top brands like Madewell, Banana Republic, Lululemon, Free People, and more for up to 90% off estimated retail. Plus, ThreadUp is offering undisclosed listeners an extra 30% off your first order when you go to threadupcom slash undisclosed. That's thredu dot slash undisclosed. That's 30% off their already heavily discounted prices. And you can find the best deals instantly because you can search by brand, style, and price, and score anthropology dresses for 13 bucks, coach handbags starting at $25, and even Steve Madden shoes for under $20. The prices are insane, and it's so easy to shop. ThreadUp triple inspects each item by hand so everything is in a high quality condition, and some items actually still have their tags on them. Now I have been on a fitness journey for the last eight, nine months, and so you know, my sizes keep changing to be honest. In the last eight months, I've gone through four or five different sizes, and I've been using ThreadUp to replenish my closet because I still gotta go to work, I still gotta look decent, I still have social events, uh, but I also don't wanna invest a lot of money, and that's where ThreadUp I've gotten great, beautiful clothing, all kinds of brands. I mean, I love anthropology. I love free people and I go directly to search and see what is available from those brands every time I'm on ThreadUp.com. And I love the convenience of being able to look for the brands I love from my sofa. I don't have to go to a store and sift through racks and keep looking and looking and looking to see if I find that one piece that I might like. This makes my life so much easier. So with ThreadUp, you're always going to have something to wear like me while never paying full price for a fresh closet again. Now, once again, for a limited time, they're offering undisclosed listeners an extra 30% off your first order when you go to ThreadUp.com com slash undisclosed. That's on top of already low prices, so hurry up and use it soon. That's T H R E D U P dot com slash undisclosed. Thread dot com slash undisclosed for an extra thirty percent off today. Terms apply.
0: Good afternoon. During the early morning hours of June the seventh, twenty fifteen, a 23-year-old security guard named Kevin Jones, dressed in full uniform, walked from his neighborhood home to the Pimlico Racetrack to report for work. At 4.53 a.m., a a single gunman approached Kevin Jones with an apparent motive to rob him and shot Kevin Jones several times, killing him.
2: On Sunday, June 7th, 2015, Kevin Jones was up early, scheduled to begin his usual shift at the Pimlico Racetrack at 5 a.m. Kevin was 22 years old and began working for the Maryland Jockey Club as a security guard after graduating high school. It was still dark out when Kevin left his grandmother Earlene's house on West Garrison Avenue in Park Heights, but Pimlico was around the corner and barely a five-minute walk. In 1873, three years after the track first opened, Pimlico debuted the Preakness Stakes, an annual thoroughbred horse race that is the second jewel of the Triple Crown. The title is awarded to a three-year-old thoroughbred horse who wins the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes in a single year. In 2015, the Kentucky Derby was held on Saturday, June 6th, which meant the Preakness was less than two weeks away. Aside from a 15-year stint at the turn of the century when the race was held up in Coney Island, New York, The Preakness has always been run at Pimlico, in the heart of Park Heights and Northwest Baltimore. The track, and especially the Preakness, attracts spectators from all over the Mid-Atlantic region, generating big money for the city. If any of that money has ever been invested back into Park Heights, it's hard to tell. The closest entrance to Pimlico is on Hayward Avenue, but Kevin Jones always cut across the parking lot on the south end of the racetrack, using a shortcut near the intersection of Park Heights Avenue and West Belvedere Avenue. He usually walked up West Garrison and turned left onto Park Heights, which had a few convenience stores that were open 24 hours a day. The street was actually a major roadway on the west side of town, a whole 12-mile stretch of State Highway 129 from Druid Hill Park all the way up through Pikesville in Baltimore County. Kevin only had to walk a few blocks north before he reached West Belvedere crossed through the intersection, and then taking a right, he kept walking alongside the fence that surrounded the parking lot. About a quarter of the way up the block, there was a gap in the fence. The two metal posts were kind of bowed open, just wide enough to slip through. The gap had been there for years. It still is there now. There's a lot of crime in Park Heights, and the blocks around Pimlico are basically an open-air drug market. Even with a City Watch CCTV camera at the intersection, street lights up and down both blocks, and police patrol cars doing laps all day and all night. But if extra privacy is needed, once the sun goes down, the parking lot at Pimlico is dark and there aren't any security cameras on this part of the property. Kevin was on time for work that morning. He was even going to be a few minutes early, but he never made it across the parking lot. At 4.51 a.m., someone called 911 to report a shooting at Park Heights in Belvedere. The sergeant on duty at the Northwest District that morning, Richard Brown, was the first officer to respond to the location. Usually an on-duty supervisor like Brown doesn't respond to calls, but the district was short on available officers that morning. Patrol officer Paul Heffernan arrived at 5.07, and he was made the primary unit for the incident. Brown didn't find a crime scene anywhere on the street, so the officers decided to canvass the Pimlico parking lot, heading in opposite directions. Here's Officer Heffernan testifying at Keith's first
1: trial. When I lo- walked on the lot, I was searching with a flashlight, and then we discovered the victim on the ground and went over to him. He was in the fetal position. He wasn't moving, he was motionless. Uh, he had suffered a gunshot wound to his head and chest.
2: Dispatch had already called for a medic, and Kevin Jones was pronounced dead at 521. Several supervisors from the Maryland Jockey Club were among the first on scene after Brown and Heffernan, and Jones was quickly identified as one of their security officers. Crime scene photos taken shortly after sunrise show Jones lying on his right side in the fetal position with his face and torso turned up. In one close-up photo of his face, his warm brown eyes gaze emptily towards the sky His forehead and hairline are bloody, and on the right side, his skull dents kind of inward and then bulges out, a malformation that indicated at least one gunshot had been to his head. His bloody, slightly open mouth and several missing and broken teeth suggest a second. Heffernan hopped back on the radio.
3: It's it's definitely going to be a 2100 case.
2: 2100 was the patrol cop's way of telling dispatch to alert the homicide unit. Kevin Jones was a Baltimore's 123rd homicide victim of 2015. Dispatch called the homicide desk down at BPD headquarters, and within just a few minutes, the case was assigned to a detective working the midnight shift that morning. His name was Mark Vini. A 25-year veteran of the department, Vini had spent the last 15 years in the homicide unit, with a few special assignments here and there. In fact, his name may be familiar to undisclosed listeners for his rather minor but memorable involvement in Adnan Syed's case. After Asia McLean testified at Adnan's 2015 post-conviction relief hearing, Thiru Vignaraja sent Vini to the Woodlawn Public Library to find something or someone to refute her testimony that they had security cameras back in 1999. Vini returned with a library employee who quickly became known as Useless Steve— Thiru seemed to believe that Steve was going to be a game-changing witness, but it turned out that he didn't have any answers at all. I still don't know if the miscommunication was due to Thiru's delusional arrogance or Vini's propensity for telling lies. To be clear, I didn't know much of anything about Vini before this case, but running errands for Thiru was a red flag. I knew Vini and his homicide pals all wore bow ties and smoked cigars, And I knew that Vini was technically one of the leads in the Freddie Gray investigation, but the files indicated he barely did anything at all. Unfortunately, the same can be said for Vini's investigation into the murder of Kevin Jones. Vini's testimony at the last three murder trials, the thin stack of Lotus notes documenting his efforts, and the rest of the evidence in the case lead only to one conclusion— Vini's investigation into who killed Kevin Jones began on June 7th, 2015 and was all but closed before the end of the day. Oh, there were steps that still needed to be taken, don't get me wrong. But by lunchtime, Vini had zeroed in on a suspect.
4: Put yourself in the mindset of a homicide detective. If you just had a murder at Park Heights in uh, Belvedere and then two or three hours later, Um, You hear of another major incident involving a police-involved shooting, which occurred a quarter of a mile away. Um, I just thought that it would be prudent to to look to see if it it had any relevance towards the uh, homicide that had occurred three hours earlier.
0: Five hours later, in Park Heights, a short distance from the murder scene, Baltimore police officers chased Keith Davis on foot while investigating the report of an unrelated crime. Keith Davis confronted Baltimore police officers with a firearm after he ran into a garage and our police officers discharged their firearms, non-fatally wounding Keith Davis.
2: When then-Police Commissioner Kevin Davis announced on March 2, 2016, that Keith Davis Jr. had been charged with first-degree murder of Kevin Jones, the jury's verdict in the armed robbery case just five days earlier seemed to have never really happened. A dozen employees of the BPD, including the four officers who shot Keith that day, testified to several contradictory versions of what the commissioner was continuing to allege. And on February 25th, they acquitted Keith of 15 of 16 charges, including all counts related to confronting the officers with a handgun. The evidence in that case was always flimsy, On the very first day of the so-called investigation, the officers who were deemed witnesses gave statements full of contradictions, which the detectives never tried to resolve. The officers who actually shot Keith were not interviewed at all by anyone for seven months, and 12 jurors had just decided their stories didn't add up. And here, Commissioner Davis was doubling down. Keith was also found not guilty of charges related to the attempted armed robbery of hack driver Charles Holden. But to hear Commissioner Davis tell it, the robbery was not just, quote, unrelated to Kevin Jones's murder, but the shooting in the garage as well. In a way, Davis was right, since Keith never robbed a hack, but the charges held Keith in jail for nine months. Holden, since the start, didn't identify Keith, and at the trial, standing mere inches away, Holden pronounced, don't look like him to me. And yet, despite what Commissioner Davis was saying about it being an unrelated crime, Charles Holden's account of the armed robbery the morning of June 7, 2015, has been a cornerstone of the prosecution's murder case. But he has never been called back to testify. This is actually a murder case that hinges on ballistics, the alleged match between the Hammerley Trailside 22 found in the garage where Keith was shot and the fired ammunition from the Pimlico crime scene. The conviction for possession of a firearm as a convicted felon is the only thing that links Keith to the murder of Kevin Jones. And one thing is for sure, that conviction, what it even means, is confusing as hell. The jury acquitted Keith of all the other charges, including wearing, carrying, transporting a firearm. The jury did not think the state proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Keith had ever had a gun on or about his person or in a vehicle, let alone used a gun in the commission of all the other charges. So how could they convict him of regular old possession, prior felony or not? It's called constructive possession. Under Maryland law, you can be found guilty of possession of a firearm and not actually have had the gun in your hand or on your person. But the state is supposed to prove a few things. Here's how Judge Barry Williams explained it during the jury instructions at the very first trial.
4: Possession means having control over an object, without actual or indirect. Possession can be either exclusive or joint. More than one person can be in possession of the same object at the same time. A person not in actual possession who knowingly has the power or the intention to exercise the meaning. Control over an object, either person or through another person, has indirect possession. Determining whether a defendant has indirect possession of an object, we should consider all of the surrounding circumstances. These circumstances include the distance between the defendant and the object, the defendant has some ownership of or accessory interest in the place where the object was found, and in any that the defendant is participating with others in mutual use and enjoyment of the object.
2: All right, so the gun on top of the fridge was in plain view and in close proximity to Keith and in a location he could have accessed according to the crime scene photos that were shown to the jury. But participating with others in the mutual use and enjoyment of the gun? This is a strange way of saying that the jury should consider whether there's any evidence of physical possession. The officers said Keith had a gun, but it's clear the jury didn't believe their testimony proved the rest of the charges and Charles Holden, the victim of the attempted armed robbery, testified Keith wasn't the guy. The fingerprint and palm print are the most obvious evidence of physical possession, yet the jury didn't believe he actually did anything with it. Following that logic, if you could call it that, maybe the jury concluded that touching a random gun in an unfamiliar location in the midst of chaos met the legal standard for constructive possession? I hope not. There's also the element of Keith's prior felony conviction. Maryland has a boatload of gun laws with distinguishing factors and penalties, and those are reflected in the state's many criminal gun charges. Keith was prohibited from physically or constructively possessing any gun. For example, he is not allowed to go to a gun range or live in a home with a firearm that isn't licensed, registered, and locked in a safe or case, for example. He was facing a mandatory minimum sentence of five years. So to get a conviction technically the state needed to prove that Keith actually was a convicted felon. Usually the defense will stipulate to that fact since what's actually in contention is the current charge. If they don't though, the state basically has to prove the defendant's identity. It's a big huge waste of the court's time so it's incredibly rare. But for example, a lawyer friend told me that in Baltimore, the prosecutor will bring in a fingerprint examiner who fingerprints the defendant In the courtroom and then compares those prints to the known prints of the convicted felon i.e themselves which are retained by the department of corrections then both print cards are entered into evidence anyway the jury instructions for the charge also address the element of a prior felony conviction here's judge williams again
4: evidence has been presented by last stipulation that the defendant was previously convicted of a criminal offense that is defined under the law of maryland as a crime prohibits him possessing irregulated regulated firearm. If this fact is not in dispute, we may consider this conviction to determine the guilty of innocence or the defendant with respect to this charge. However, we may not consider this conviction as evidence of guilt with respect to any of the other charged offenses.
2: I find these instructions a little bit misleading. I think it gives a lot of weight to the prior felony element of the charge in determining innocence or guilt overall. And during closing arguments, so did prosecutor Lizette Ringgold-Kirksey. She didn't really talk about the possession element at all.
5: Lastly, he's charged with prohibited possession of a firearm after having a disqualifying crime. Well, you heard the state present to you state exhibit number 32. It's a stipulation of fact, actually, that's an evidence that you'll be able to see. Where it's stated to you the parties hereby stipulate the defendant has previously been convicted of a crime state law that prohibited his possession of a regulated firearm as defined in Public Safety Article 5 one 33 c one of the ANC Code of Maryland. And this stipulation has been signed not only by myself, the prosecutor, but counsel for the defendant as well as the defendant. This is acknowledging that the defendant has a prior conviction where he's not allowed to have a gun. That is a fact that you do not have to deliberate. He had a gun and he's a prohibited person for having that gun. So, therefore, he is guilty of that count. That is a fact that you don't even have to think about. If you believe that the defendant is guilty, of the charges in this case if we believe the defendant had his gun he is guilty of being a prohibited person in possession of that firearm
2: did you hear that rustling of paper wrinkled kirksey actually had the signed stipulation in her hand here's reporter baynard woods the
3: prosecutor kind of made this point that you can't not convict on this. And I, and I know the defense has taken that as, rather than a rhetorical flourish, as a claim that jurors took to mean, look, this one is not open for debate. It's uh, this right. one you actually don't have a choice, rather than the rhetorical flourish of like, you, there's no way you could not possibly uh, see this. But it was a prizing verdict. I got the sense at the time that where they didn't really see a contradiction is that people thought that, like, yeah, he clearly didn't rob this hack. And his story that he was just walking down the street is probably right. So, like, yeah, they chased the wrong guy and they shot the wrong guy, but the guy happened to also have a gun because it's Baltimore. And relying on this assumption of people seeing every night on the news, oh, my God, more people are shot. Oh, my God, more people are killed. We'll
2: never know what the jury was thinking, but Baynard's theory speaks to an undeniable impact that crime, and in particular gun violence, has on residents of Baltimore. The jury didn't buy the state's case, but maybe the basic elements rang so true, they came up with a simple story of their own. A young black man in Park Heights is chased by police and then shot, but oh look, he has a gun. In 2015, Baltimore saw record-breaking violence including over 340 homicides, many of them fatal shootings. The number has barely fluctuated since. Many jurors live in the middle of it, have seen loved ones, friends, and neighbors pay the price. Shootings and homicides dominate the local news, with stories according to what police say, picturing victims and suspects and persons of interest, almost all of them young black men like Keith and Kevin Jones. Maybe the conviction was a compromise. Guilty on the lowest charge, just in case. As it turned out, Just In Case was the reason for that charge all along.
0: Why do you, so this is a gentleman who just um, was found guilty of one charge acquitted with several others in court Mm -hmm. um, for that incident related to his being in the garage. Mm -hmm. Um, Why these charges now um, if the incident occurred in June and there was um, a substantive investigation as to the the events of that day? I'll, I'll, I'll say this. There, there, there's a reason why there's no statute of limitations for, for the crime of murder. So uh, homicide investigations uh, take time. They take collaboration with our partners, and our partners in this case in, included the state's attorney's office and the FBI. So we wanted to make sure that we had sufficient evidence gathered. And as we've described, we have forensic evidence. We have ballistic evidence. And when we gathered that, that evidence in a way, that amounted to uh, probable cause. We moved forward with the state's attorney's office and sought charges for first-degree murder.
2: Kevin Davis refused to answer this reporter's question about when the gun was ballistically linked to the murder. But that was an important question then, and it's an important question now. After three murder trials, each crazier than the last, and more and more distance from the shooting, I wondered whether people even had an answer or were still wondering. I asked Bannard Woods what he thought. What's your kind of sense in terms of the timeline, like them linking Keith to the murder? I'm wondering how that came across.
3: Yeah, I have no idea um, if it was, I mean, my guess would be that they made the link right when they added those new charges. That would be why, like, okay, let's, let's see, if he gets off on all this other stuff and they started to realize it was a bad case, if he gets off on this other stuff, then like, let's just make sure he gets linked to the gun and then we have him again.
2: Baynard's referring to the prohibited firearm possession charges that were filed against Keith in December 2015. It's a good guess. Those charges were clearly important. And the timing of them is interesting, too. His hunch that the police was lying in wait, that's definitely true. But for how long? The truth is, he's many, many months off. According to the actual uh, ballistics reports, like the, the testing that compared the gun to the Cell casings from the murder scene that was completed on June 11th,
3: 2015. Wow, yeah, and it's very strange that they wouldn't, especially given their concern with the narrative and the homicide rate. It's odd that they would just say, We're not going to normally you'd go to the state's attorney and be like, Look, we have evidence now that this guy also committed this murder. Let's. Go with that. And then that helps your, your robbery case, because right. that explains why he's all agitated or whatever they want him to say. And so like, it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense if you're playing on the up and up.
2: On Friday, July 12th, 2019, Keith began his fourth trial for the murder of Kevin Jones. As with any trial, this began with pre-trial motions, which were due to take an entire day. And they were interesting right away from the start. But all of a sudden, Keith's new attorney, Deborah Levy, dropped the kind of bomb I could have only imagined in my wildest nightmares. Levy had obtained 2017 internal affairs documents for the four firearms examiners who analyzed the ballistic evidence in Keith's case. And what she found was insane a culture of bullying that resulted in one firearms examiner picking up another firearms examiner who called him incompetent, throwing her eight feet across the room, leaving her with bruises up and down her arms. As she told IAD, her supervisors at the crime lab did not follow proper procedure by reporting the assault. She ended up leaving the department rather than stay. That was hardly the only thing. There were allegations, of cheating, failing on proficiency exams, one examiner had to be reprimanded for repeatedly misidentifying firearms. Most insane of all, James Wagster, the primary examiner on the shell casings that were collected from the murder scene of Kevin Jones and the primary firearms examiner of the Hammerly Trailside 22 pistol. He's basically blind. This coming Thursday on undisclosed Thank you so much for coming back for part 2 of our Keith Davis Jr series with any freaking luck this is going to be the end of his terrible nightmare For the next two weeks, I'll be attending the trial, writing episodes about the murder, incorporating the new information that comes out in court. If it's anything like what we heard at the motions hearing on Friday, well, I think you're going to want to tune in. I want to say thank you so much to Rabia, Susan, and Colin for letting me do this series, letting me break it up into two parts, and for letting me add episodes and just basically letting me do my thing. This has been the best experience that I wish I was not doing because I wish Keith was home. Thank you so much to Team Keith for welcoming me to Baltimore, and I love you all. Thank you so much to Rebecca, who's on a plane right now, I think, and is editing this episode and probably hates me. I love you, Rebecca. Thank you so much to Mithel Telhen. I will probably still ask you for extra episodes, even though I know it's not going to happen, but you never know. Miracles. We'll see. Thank you so much to all the lovely people who are doing some form of court support this week, whether it is attending the trial and taking glorious notes and sending me photos of them so I don't miss a thing, or if you're making food and making sure that everybody's staying well-fed and rested, thank you so much for that. Shout out to all the court employees who I hear are listening to the podcast. Hey, guys. And lastly, I'm just sending love and strength and hope and all of it. To Keith and Kelly Davis, who are going through a truly traumatizing experience for the fifth time when this should not be happening at all. I can feel it. This is the home stretch.
5: To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is the Baron of Botox. Botox.